Well, as we continue in the second message of a four-part series, in which we're looking at our core commitments as Crossway Fellowship, we come to the one that probably needs the most explanation, the one that needs the most unpacking, and that is obey the truth. We are compelled to obey the truth. By saying that we are compelled to obey the truth, we really are capturing two fundamental convictions that we hold to. The first conviction is that God is God. God is God. In other words, God is sovereign, and he has both the right and the authority to give people commands. God has the right and the authority to tell us what to do and tell us what not to do. Secondly, this God, who is sovereign, has spoken in the Bible. He has spoken in the scriptures. This is the truth. In his word, he has revealed his will. He has revealed his promises, his commands, his, uh, his plans, As God's word, then, the Bible is absolute truth, is completely trustworthy and reliable, which means that in terms of our lives, then, it is also binding. We are subject to it. We are bound to its authority over our lives, and we answer to it. Now, that is not just Christians. That is all humanity. Whether people recognize it or not, All humanity is bound to the word of God. Therefore, it is essential to being a Christian to obey God's word. So before we jump into the scriptures here, let me pray for us. Father, help us now as we come to your word. Help us to take stock of our lives, to receive life-giving truth we would ask that you would shine the light of truth onto these paths that we tread, that we might find our way, that we might see clearly and understand truly. We thank you that you are faithful. Lord, make our hearts soft. In your name, we ask these things, amen. I want to begin then with a story from the Old Testament. It was found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, just to give you a little context, Saul is king. And Saul has already proven to not be a good king. And the Lord has commanded Saul to go to war against the Amalekites, a neighboring people group that have profaned God with their idolatry and their immorality and so have become an abomination to him. And God, the creator of all mankind, including the Amalekite race, has commanded Saul and the nation of Israel to be an instrument of judgment in his hand against the king of the Amalekites, Agag, and the Amalekite people. And the judgment is complete destruction. And part of God's commands to Saul and the people are, don't take any spoils. When you go to war against the Amalekites, 
I want complete and utter description. Don't keep anything. Now Saul has gone to war, and they have won the battle. And Samuel, God's prophet and the last of the judges, the one who has anointed Saul as king, comes to greet Saul upon his return, only to discover that Saul has actually kept some of the spoils that he has disobeyed the Lord. And so Samuel confronts Saul, and he asks him the question, why didn't you obey the Lord? Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? And we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 20, with Saul's response to Samuel. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now let's pause for a second. So if you hear Saul's words, Saul, first of all, counts partial obedience as obedience. He makes the claim, I obeyed, I went on the mission, I went to war against the Amalekites and we've destroyed them, we've defeated them. Saul also shifts responsibility to the people. Notice, the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen. So Saul doesn't take responsibility, I have obeyed, he says which is really only partial obedience, and the people took spoils. You see, when we live lives of disobedience, we can begin to hold illogical, irrational incongruities in our thinking that really don't line up. How can Saul say, I've obeyed and went on the mission, but the people kept the spoils? It's not obedience. And so Saul rationalizes this partial obedience as devotion to the Lord. We brought back the best of the things that were devoted to destruction and we're supposed to destroy. We have brought them for what? To sacrifice to the Lord. What nobler reason can there be to keep the spoils? What greater motivation can there be than to worship God by sacrificing the best of the sheep and the oxen for his glory, for his pleasure, for his exaltation? Samuel's response is in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, sorcery, and presumption is, an, is as iniquity and idolatry. Listen to what Samuel said. He says, disobedience, 
Rebellion is no different than practicing the occult in God's eyes. And presumption to take upon ourselves the role of deciding how to worship, what will please God or not please God, regardless of what God has said, is as worshiping an idol, iniquity, idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is a sad, sad scene. This is a heartbreaking scene. Saul has forfeited the throne, not only for himself, but for all of his descendants, his line. But you see, Saul's choices capture so well how many people approach God's commandments with partial obedience, with rationalization. Henry David Thoreau, the famous American philosopher and essayist, wrote, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And what he meant by that was that humanity as a whole tends to live in this desperate, uh, oppressed sense without ever voicing their freedoms, their opinions. I would say that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation because we often lead lives of quiet disobedience. We harbor disobedience. Even Christians, even God's people who claim to love God and to be pursuing the Christian life often lives lives of disobedience. So I want to ask a similar question this morning that I asked last week regarding love, loving others. And that is, why is obedience essential for the Christian life? Why is obedience essential for the Christian life? When we're talking about obeying God, we're not talking about something that's optional as a Christian. But first, let's clear the table a bit by acknowledging that we don't like the word obey or the word obedience. Those words kind of rub us the wrong way. They, uh, they're jarring we would much rather this core commitment say, love God, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But we'd much rather it say, love others, love God. That's easier to swallow. That's easier on the ears. Let me suggest four reasons that the words obey and obedience make us squirm. And by the way, someone asked me this morning, are you, are you going to preach long again? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't want to cheat anybody out of their money. You guys pay a lot of money to be here this morning. and I want you to get a good workout. So, Let me give you four reasons we squirm under the word obey. First of all, we confuse obedience with legalism. We confuse obedience with legalism. In many Christian circles... It has become the biggest no-no that a Christian can commit 
to be legalistic. Though I'm pretty sure we use that word incorrectly very often. Legalism is adding a human command or a human standard to God's commands and standards and claiming that the human standard has divine authority. That's what legalism is. And so legalism creates a false righteousness. If God draws the line here, then we add something here and we say this is the line and we treat that line with divine authority. We try to live by that rule and we impose it on others. That is legalism. Calling for obedience to what God does say is not legalism. For example, if someone says it is sin to drink alcohol, that is legalistic. If they are trying to keep that rule and they impose it on others. Now, as a matter of conscience, that's, a different ma- that's something else. Say, that's, it goes against my conscience to drink alcohol. Good. Go with it. But if we say that not drinking alcohol is a command from God and therefore comes to us with divine authority, that is legalistic because God never says, do not drink alcohol. He never says that in his word. Now, if someone says, you cannot get drunk because that is sin, It is sin to drink too much, to become intoxicated, for that to be a pattern for someone to be enslaved to alcohol. That is not legalistic. That is a matter of obedience because God is very clear about commanding us to not be drunk. But we hear someone say, obey, And we think, ah, false standards of righteousness are thus imposed upon me. Not so. And we need to think biblically about obedience and its rightful place in the Christian life. Number two. So we confuse obedience with legalism. Secondly, we confuse obedience with external rule keeping. Now this is related to the first one. This is related to the issue of legalism, because legalistic systems are built around keeping rules, checking off all the right boxes, jumping through all the right hoops. This is how the legalist attains righteousness. I did this, I do that, I keep this rule, I don't violate that, I don't go to this place, therefore I'm righteous. And I think when we hear obey, we often hear a call to keep rules and to keep the rules on the outside without necessarily having to deal with the heart. We think of obey as going through the motions of behavior without heart transformation. And we know that's no good. That's moralism. But true obedience, according to the Bible, includes both. Or to put it another way, it's possible to obey on the outside 
without heart change. It is possible to fake it. It is possible to try to check off all the boxes. But it is not possible to undergo heart change without obedience. It's not possible. And I'll show you that from the Bible in just a few minutes. Okay, so, but we confuse obedience with external rule, uh, rule keeping. We hear obey, we think, ah, that's just external. That doesn't deal with the heart. It's not what obedience is. Now, I know where that leads you to think, and so I'm including number three here. We confuse obedience with works righteousness because it does concern me that you will hear me say, oh, so then to be righteous, I have to obey. Yes, that is true. But if you hear it as a merit, if you hear it as something by which you earn God's favor, that is not biblical. You see, we know that the Bible clearly teaches that we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. In other words, so no one can ever try to take credit for their own salvation, their own redemption. That's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Obedience, we think, is a word that belongs to the Old Testament because the Old Testament was all about keeping the law. Old Testament, law, obey. New Testament, faith, grace. So obedience is a word that belongs to the Old Testament. Faith and grace are words that belong to the New Testament because Jesus has come providing salvation by grace through faith and obedience has nothing to do with it because, hey, we can't keep the law anyway. We can only trust in God's grace. We are reformed in our theology and we hold unwaveringly to the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone. That was the reformer's term for it. Faith alone. We must trust in God's grace. We can never earn it by our own efforts. Well, I gotta tell you something. The Old Testament says the same thing. The Old Testament says that faith is the only way to please God. And the New Testament makes that clear. Read Hebrews 11. Faith is the only way to please God. And unfortunately, we hear the word obey and we hear earning salvation through our own efforts. And thus, we pit obedience against faith. As if obedience is a totally different track to run on to try to become a Christian or to be a Christian, and faith is a different track. Not so. We need to think biblically about obedience. Fourthly, one of the last reason we tend to squirm under the word obey and obedience, we confuse obedience as a response to oppression. We take the word obey and the word obedience and we see those words as belonging to a, or being a response to oppression 
Only someone who is oppressed by abusive authority obeys. Obeying is what a slave does. Or someone under tyranny. Obedience sounds forced, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like something glad and happy. Obedience sounds like forced or something over you forcing you to have to obey. We obey when we're forced against our wills. But really, obedience is the right response to authority. It's the right response to a king, capital K, king. It is the right response to the creator. God does have absolute authority. And as much as we like to think highly of ourselves, you and I are God's inferiors. Okay? We are. He is a superior. He is God. So for example, when Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 says to children, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It is not slavish oppression. It is right. And for God our Father to say to us, obey me, is not slavish oppression. It is right. Okay, so hopefully that will help clear out some of the clutter around the word obey. Now let's get to our question. Why is obedience essential to the Christian life? And like last time and the next couple of times, we are going to look at a lot of different passages, okay? And they'll be up front. You won't have to flip and, you know, uh, try to poke your way through your device to get to these passages, though I encourage you to jot them down, come back to them, okay? But we're going to go through a lot of passages, and we're not going to spend super deep. We're not going to... I'm trying to give you a connection especially in the New Testament. In fact, all of my passages here, except for a couple in the Psalms, are in the New Testament. I didn't even go to the Old Testament to talk about obedience. I was just looking at the New Testament. What is said to the church here. But know that we're going to hit a lot of them. Also, there are other words for obey than just obey. We will see the word especially keep. Keep his commands. Keep my commandments. We'll talk about the word when we get there. But know that there are other terms than just obey that capture this obedience. All right, so first of all, why is obedience essential to the Christian life? Number one, because believing the gospel means obeying it. Believing the gospel means obeying the gospel. John chapter 3, verse 35 and verse 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Stop right there. We, we understand that statement, don't we? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever places their trust in the person of Jesus has eternal life. No other way, no other path, no other 
uh, means of accomplishment to earn or merit eternal life, we believe in the Son. Verse 36, second part. Whoever does hmm, not believe, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus interchanges like like equal parts, believing in the Son and obeying the Son. He doesn't draw some line between them as if these are two different tracks to eternal life. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, meaning if you don't believe in the Son, you don't have eternal life. But Jesus doesn't say, but if you don't believe in the Son, you don't have eternal life. Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son. Because you can't believe in the Son without obeying the Son. We could stop right there, but we're not. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the gospel. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, Who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you see the connections? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And then he forms this chain, the apostle Paul does, between coming to faith so that they can call on God, but they have to have heard which means someone has to preach. And for someone to preach, they have to be sent. And how beautiful are the feet. What a blessing it is to have someone preach the gospel. What a blessing to humanity that the gospel is proclaimed, that salvation can be known. But they have not all believed? No, obeyed the gospel. They have not obeyed the gospel. Why can Paul say this? Because the gospel is not just an invitation that you can decline. The gospel is a command from the God Almighty who created you to repent and turn from sin and embrace him in faith. And if you decline the invitation, quote unquote, you rebel against God's call to you as a person to come to him That is obeying the gospel. How about Romans chapter 1? We'll work backwards in the book of Romans. Paul introduces himself in the first couple of verses as a servant of Christ Jesus. He has been commissioned to proclaim Jesus as descended from David, that he is the rightful king 
He is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And then he says in the middle of verse 5, we have received, and he's talking about as an apostle, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you see it? His entire apostolic mission in this place, Paul summarizes to be to bring about the obedience of faith. Meaning that the faith that the gospel calls for is a faith that submits its life to Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and the son of God. That's the apostolic message. To come to an obedience of faith. See this mentioned in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 verse 7. This is one of those places in the book of Acts where Luke, the author, kind of summarizes the, the plot line, the action line, as, as the gospel is moving forward, as it is changing lives, as it's being embraced, as the church is growing. And he says, the word of God continued to increase. That's one of Luke's images of how the, the gospel is growing and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The, the word of God, the message of the gospel has increased and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And he adds this, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The faith, meaning the proclamation of the gospel and all of its teachings, that's the faith that we hold to and that many of the priests in Jerusalem were becoming obedient to it. They were accepting it. There's no difference between believing the gospel and being obedient to the faith. And this really is the essence of discipleship. Listen, this is really at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. This is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And we know these verses. Listen, this is what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says, take up his cross daily and follow me, what does he mean? He's talking about giving up our own self-rule, our own autonomy, and giving my life up. In the same way that he dies on the cross, we take up the cross. There is no other way of being a Christian. There is no other discipleship. And so, this is really at the heart of it all. So, believing the gospel means obeying it. It means obeying the gospel. Secondly, loving God means obeying him. Believing the gospel means obeying the gospel. Loving God means obeying God. Let's look at John chapter 14. 
beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here, here's the word keep. This word keep means to guard, means to watch over. But the picture that the word is painting is this to treasure, to watch over by practicing. It's by doing the commandments. That's how we keep or guard, watch over, treasure. In this case, it's Jesus talking about himself. If you love me, you will treasure my commandments by practicing them. That's what he says. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, because Judas Iscariot has already departed at this point. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, by this word manifest, when Jesus says, I will manifest myself to him, he means make myself known in a personal way to commune with. And so when Judas asks this question, how, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? What he is asking is, what makes our relationship to you different? Why is it that we can commune with you in such a way that the rest of the world cannot? How is it that we can know you? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. There's the manifestation. There's the manifesting himself, making himself known, personally accessible. Jesus and the father. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So I'm not speaking independently here. God the Father is saying our message is the same. Our presence is the same. So Jesus exposes spurious claims to love him and honor him. When somebody says, I love Jesus. I think Jesus is great. I honor Jesus. Do you keep his commandments? Do you keep his word? Because Jesus says that's what loving him is. Likewise, he exposes any claim to love God as a false one if someone isn't obeying God. I love God. God and I are friends. Jesus says you only love him if you obey him. John would write the same thing in his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is sent as Savior King, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So John is saying that the proof of believing that Jesus is the Christ is, or I should say that believing uh, is proven by, is proving that you've been born of him, sorry. That by believing in him shows, displays that you have been born, that you belong to him, that you are truly his child. But the reverse is also true. That a new birth being born of God results in believing in Jesus as the Christ and no other way. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God because this, this relationship is established. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So to say that you love people by accepting sin and disobedience to God is not loving people. Love is defined. When we love God, we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Because loving God means obeying him, right? Okay, so believing the gospel means obeying the gospel. And loving God means obeying God. We can't say we love God, and we can't say we love people without saying we obey God. Thirdly, sanctification means obedience. Sanctification means obedience. Now let's talk about sanctification for a second. This is a, a big word. It's a word that most of you maybe are familiar with. To sanctify means to make holy. It really means to set apart. And in one sense, when you become a Christian, when you, when you exercised faith, when you believed upon Jesus, when you repented from sin and committed your life to him, you were sanctified. You were at that point set apart unto God as his child. And we are as his people. We're set apart unto God. In that sense, we are already sanctified. But we also know that we are undergoing a process of being made holy. We are undergoing a process of being set apart unto God. That is the sanctification process, is growing in holiness or being transformed. We are still undergoing transformation. We are being transformed. And transformation is not optional. Because you see, sanctification is part of the package of salvation. You don't get justified. You don't get saved. You don't become uh, right with God, made right with God, and then skip directly to glory in heaven 
without undergoing a transforming work in your life. When the Bible talks about salvation, the New Testament in particular, when it talks about being saved, it's talking about the whole package. That those who are justified are those who then are, are go under a, a process of being transformed who then go on to glory. Now, this passage is not up front, okay, because it, it's just come to mind. But Romans chapter 8, Paul makes this connection, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. Here's Paul's language here for being sanctified, for being changed, for, uh, that we are conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you see, he makes that jump from justified to glorified. This is an unbreakable chain. But he leaps from justified to glorified because he's already talked about being conformed. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. That is sanctification. And it is not optional. No Christian is saved or a Christian without undergoing a process of sanctification. Being transformed, being conformed to the image of Christ. So when we say sanctification means obedience... What I'm saying is that obedience is a necessary part of that process. That as you grow spiritually, as you grow in holiness, you are becoming more obedient. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. Galatians, by the way, is one of Paul's harshest letters, probably is the harshest. And he is just really enraged with these believers. You were running well, Paul says. You were growing. You had received the gospel. And you were running the race well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you a little leaven, leavens the whole Lump. Now, what is Paul talking about? Well, the Galatians were abandoning the gospel for a false gospel that was depending on human accomplishments, especially circumcision. The folks who were undermining the Galatians' faith in Jesus were Judaizers. They were groups of Jews who were going around and undermining the gospel and winning converts back into Judaism by changing the requirements and saying, yeah, but you have to be circumcised also and you've got to keep this ceremony and you've got to keep this celebration. And the Galatians had bought into it. They were, they were buying into it. They were being undermined. They were being hindered from obeying the truth. So... Having come to the gospel, having become Christians, Paul is saying that, that 
To run the Christian life well means to be obeying the truth. And obeying the truth here means continuing to trust in Christ alone for salvation, not adding effort, not adding ceremony to the gospel. He says a little leaven, a little leaven, a little compromise corrupts the whole gospel. You're running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? If you're going to run well, you're to be obeying the truth. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, we just went through 1 Peter, but this passage was several months ago. And here we are coming back to it to see that Paul is writing to elect exiles for what purpose? You've been saved for, among others here, sanctification of the Spirit, obedience to Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in a, in a way, summarizes the entire Christian life, the whole purpose of being saved. You've been saved, elected for obedience to Jesus Christ. We could even say that this is even the, a summary of discipleship. Let's think about the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Make disciples, going therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and what? teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That word observe is the same word keep. It's the same word. Teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. You can't even fulfill the great commission without teaching obedience to Jesus' commands. That's part of the commission. Baptizing, teaching them to obey. All that I've commanded you. So sanctification means obedience. Let's look at one more passage. 1 John chapter 2. It can't get any clearer than this. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's, that's the goal. So we don't continue to sin. We sin less and less and less. I'm writing so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when we do sin, when we do fall, Jesus Christ advocates for us. Well, that's good news, isn't it? He advocates for us. What enables him to advocate for us? He is the righteous, the righteous one, and he has been the propitiation. Here's this word again. I think we talked about this word last week. 
He is the propitiation. He has taken God's wrath upon himself. He has absorbed the wrath that we should have taken. He has appeased God's wrath for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So he has already taken all of God's wrath. And so the picture is that when we sin, Jesus steps before the Father as an advocate and says, I've already taken the wrath for what Sean just did. There's there's no judgment left. I've already taken it. He advocates for us. And that that propitiation, that work of taking God's wrath upon himself is sufficient for the whole world. Meaning there is no other shelter. There there is no other hope in any other advocate before God. It's sufficient for the whole world. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Here's how we know that we are in this relationship. My little children. It's the little children who belong to God who have an advocate when they sin. And we know that we are in him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. I know him. How do you live? I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And that... Love of God is is a phrase that really means love for God. The love of God that we would have for God is perfected. It's made whole in us who keep his word. In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. How can you know? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, keeping his commands. Jesus, the righteous, is righteous because he kept the commands of God. He fulfilled them in his life, which is why he could die in your place and mine and take the wrath of God that was intended for us. Because he had obeyed the commandments completely, fully, on our behalf. But you can't say you know him and disregard his commandments. Or treat them as if they don't exist. Or live however you want and call it grace. That's what John's saying. We have an advocate if we sin. But we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And if you say you know him, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Now there's some good news. (laughs) That's all good news. 
It's truth, right? But number four, God has enabled us to obey. So if you're hearing this and you're going, oh, right? Now look, you listen to it on Sunday morning for an hour, whatever it's gonna be. You listen to it on Sunday morning. I've been reading this all week, right? I've been, I've been saturated with these texts all week long. And this is why I say this is good news because you read this and you're going, man, because we can all look at so many places in our lives where we're disobedient, where we're not obeying, where we hear what John says and, and we go, man, I don't even know if I'm saved. <laughs> How can I say I'm a Christian? You know what? You might need to ask that question. I'm not going to give you false security. That's neither loving nor true. You might need to ask that question. I don't want anyone to live under the oppression of false guilt, false accusation. You fly to Jesus. Okay. But if you look at your life, if you're looking at your life and you're going, man, I don't know that my life really squares up. I'm pretty willful. So you might need, the answer is repentance one way or the other. Okay. It's turning. But listen, if you're a Christian and you're going, man, I'm just, I'm struggling and I, I don't know how to obey. Good news. God has enabled you to obey. And you know what? He had to. He had to enable us to obey because without him doing so, we are defined by disobedience. Even our respectable morality is disobedience. Titus chapter three, verse three. I'm just gonna point you to a couple of places. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Yeah, that pretty much sums up everybody's life before Jesus. We were disobedient. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. In which you once walked, the ways in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul just calls the whole world outside of Christ as the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Oh, so we were too. Sons of disobedience. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Well, it's only one way you get out of that. And that's for God to do a work. That's for God to change us, to change our hearts. And you know where that begins? What God has done to enable us to obey started with the promise of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant. Now, this is, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 36. This is one of the few Old Testament passages this morning. I had to leave so much out, okay? But Ezekiel chapter 36, 
These are promises to the nation of Israel. They are later revealed and explained as the mystery of the gospel to be applied to us, that we reaping, we are reaping the benefits of this new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is a promise to Israel in exile. They are scattered. They've been judged. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you holy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wash you. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. Wow. How is it going to clean us? Especially when we get clean and we just go jump in the dirt again. God says, I'm going I'm to make you clean. I'm going I'm to wash you and I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Mm, it's that heart of stone that disobeys. It's the heart of stone that, that balls itself up in front of God and says, no, I will be my own master. I will live my life my way. It's a heart of stone. God says, I will, I will remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And watch this. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And part of being God's people then is having this heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh put in. And the spirit of God coming to dwell in us. For what purpose? To cause us to do what? To walk in his statutes and to obey his rules. To obey him. That's where the heart change begins with God doing that work of transformation in our lives. And only he can do it. Only he can do it. Now, we see the application throughout the New Testament. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples, okay? First is in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So you're... A slave, either to sin or to obedience. And you will obey one or the other. You're going to obey. You're either obeying sin as a slave or you're obeying, as the way it's put here, you're obeying obedience in, to be righteousness. You are enslaved to obedience or you're enslaved to rebellion. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from what? The heart. 
So becoming a slave of righteousness means becoming obedient from the heart. Not checking off boxes, not jumping through hoops, but obedient from the heart. That's willing, willing obedience. That's glad obedience. And you can't gladly obey God unless your heart's been changed. So if you chafe under God's authority, that's a good sign that you're not, you don't belong to him. Because if you become a slave of righteousness, then you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, there is the great delusion, the great lie that to become obedient to God means to suppress you and to put you in chains when the truth is just the opposite. That to become obedient to righteousness, to become obedient from the heart is freedom, not oppression. It's freedom. God has enabled us to obey. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. No, this is not the same passage I've read a couple of times already. John just repeats himself a lot in this book. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. There's the difference, right? There's the difference. His commands aren't burdensome to someone who has been born of God. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So overcoming the world is keeping his commands. That's overcoming the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You just can't get away from this. Keeping his commands is, is overcoming the world, and we overcome the world by what? Faith. Faith and Obedience. These aren't two different tracks. And his commands aren't burdensome. That's the difference. We don't grind and grit our teeth under God's commands. Not if we belong to him. We believe him. We trust him. His commands open up paths for us. They illuminate safety, rightness. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And what about those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They keep his commands. They obey. This is why we can rejoice in God's commands. And this is what I'm going to leave you with today, okay? God has enabled us to obey. And one of the ways you can know and be certain whether or not you belong to God or not is whether or not you take joy in his commands. Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 19, verses 8 and 9, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Oh, when God commands me to love my neighbor, when God commands me to, to abstain from immorality, when God commands me, when Jesus tells me, to take up my cross, 
When Jesus tells me to turn the other cheek, we rejoice. I rejoice in those. I am happy to obey it. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It illumines the path. Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 47, I find delight in your commandments, which I love. I love them. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. It's a sign of welcome, surrender. And I will meditate on your statutes. God has enabled us to obey him. He has taken the heart of stone and he has put in a heart of flesh and his spirit has come to dwell in us. Rejoice in his commandments. That's the difference between the people of God and the world. We are compelled, we can almost say, we're compelled by joy to obey the truth. Let's pray. Lord, who is, who is there like you? Who is there like you who has loved his people and died on their behalf? Who has loved his people before they were his people, shown mercy and grace to enemies? There is none beside you. And we come before you today as your people who are undergoing this work of transformation and ask that you would help us to obey. Even in our joy, in your commandments, ah, we still sin. The flesh is still at our heels. But Lord, our misery in our disobedience is a good and clear sign that we belong to you, that you are calling to us, calling us to repent, calling us to obey. Help us to put aside these, uh, this confusion these childish ways of thinking about obedience and mature in our understanding that we are to be an obedient people, that we can't even claim to follow you, to be your disciples if we don't obey you. Lord, be pleased with our worship. May it come from soft and obedient hearts. In your name we pray, amen.